Good evening. evening. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And please stand with me as I'll read the entire chapter. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And this is God's holy word. Romans chapter 5, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life 
by Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. And let us pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, this is your word, and I pray that you would speak to us. Oh, Lord, that we would not be stuck in men's words, but, oh, Lord, that as we look at your word, we would explain and apply your word faithfully. And, Lord, that your people would hear it faithfully. Help us now, we pray. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, without him, we cannot get your word. Lord, we cannot understand what you are saying to us. We cannot apply it rightly to our lives. Have mercy upon us, I pray. Help us now. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. There are so many amazing truths and connections with other themes in this chapter. But our focus tonight will be kind of a summary view of being in Adam and being in Christ. In Adam, death reigns. And in Christ, or in Jesus, Christians reign in life by Jesus Christ. And so my title tonight is, Are You Reigning? And that's R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Are you reigning by Jesus Christ? At this point, in the book of Romans, Paul is at a transition. He's just finished making the glorious claim that God's people are justified, declared righteous, with the righteousness of God himself through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And after this passage, Paul is going to get into how we must live in the light of justification. Sanctification, holiness, is the fruit that grows on the branches of the justified saint's life. And that's Romans 6 through 8. There in those chapters, Romans 6 through 8, he'll show how union with Christ is the mighty basis for this holiness of life. And the living Holy Spirit of God himself indwelling the believer is the mighty empowerment for this holiness of life. But what does Paul give us right here at this hinge between justification and sanctification? The justification dealt with in Romans 3 and 4, and sanctification dealt with in 6 through 8. He gives us two representative men, Adam and Christ. Why do we need these two men? Paul wants us to understand that life outside of Christ is not just a surface problem. We're in union with a rebel, Adam. And that life in Christ is not just a surface solution. We're in union with the Son of God himself, Christ Jesus. If we separate the various truths that Paul teaches in the earlier parts of Roman from the later parts of Roman, and we don't have these two men, Adam and Christ, to hold the two sections together, we could end up in error. If we exclusively focus on justification, then we could think the Christian life is a passive life of simply waiting for heaven secured by Christ's righteousness. If we exclusively focus on sanctification, a holy life, it could lead us to self-absorption and frustration if we don't understand the great foundation of all that God has done for us in Christ and the union that we have with Christ out of which that sanctification flows. So Paul brings in these two great men, Adam and Jesus. And every one of us in the world is related 
to one or both of these two men. By nature, we are all related to Adam. And it's God's great gift that any of us are related to Christ. If we're in Adam, then legally we're condemned. Practically, we're wicked. And at the end, we're headed for death. If we're in Christ, then legally we're justified. Practically, we're being sanctified. And at the end, we're headed for eternal glory. So notice those three aspects, legal, practical, and at the end, or eschatological. But let's start in verse 12. In verse 12, we see that by one man, sin entered the world. We don't become sinners because we sin. We were born as sinners in this world. Because Adam ate the sweet fruit in the garden, all of us have been eating the bitter fruit of his sin, and we've been adding on our own. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It starts with that little phrase, by one man. Sin entered the world not by the woman, Eve, even though she ate the fruit first, nor did it enter the world by all men. In other words, sin didn't come in by all of us just ending up being wicked on our own. Sin entered the world by one man. Adam, as a man, in fact, the man, because he was the only one, and he was the first one, he was the first male head of his family, and at that time, the entire human race, he stood in a peculiar legal relation to all his descendants. He represented them. And through him, sin entered the world. Because of who Adam was as the custodian of God's creation and the representative of God in the world, the image bearer, the legal head of God's children, I'm sorry, of Adam's children, His act of disobedience plunged his descendants and the whole creation into a new condition. And this new condition had those three aspects that I mentioned, legal, practical, and eschatological. The legal aspect of sin in the world is that Adam's descendants would now be considered unrighteous, sinners, violators of God's law. We see that in verses 13 and 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. We didn't have to wait for the law of Moses to come to be given by God before everyone was considered a sinner. We see the legal aspect in that clause, sin was imputed. And then in its consequence, death reigned. But not only is there the legal aspect of sin in the world, where guilt, the guilt of sin is imputed to us, but there's the practical aspect. When Adam sinned and sin entered into the world by that one man, Adam, practically this entire world has been transformed from what it was and that's usually how we see sin in this world what about all these recent shootings what about the wars that we hear about Adam's descendants now are born not only under the legal 
status of being considered guilty, but they are born with a sinful nature that causes them to do all kinds of acts of wickedness, disobeying God's law. They're born with a sinful nature into a sinful world under the rule of a sinful devil. And I believe that's, that's why Paul uses such an a, a all-inclusive word down in the later verse in this chapter, verse 19, where he says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Not only were we considered sinners, not only were we condemned as sinners, but we are sinners. Every last one of us born into this world is a sinner, made sinners. And it's easy for our carnal minds, our natural minds, to revolt against this doctrine. It's unfair. Why should God punish me for Adam's sin? Well, Adam's sin did not only give you Adam's guilt, it made you a sinner. And since you are a sinner, you love sin. And if God did not restrain you, you would plunge yourselves headlong into the worst imaginable wickedness. And how can God not punish such creatures as now we are? He did not create us this way. We are plunged into sin and into the condition of sin. Sin entered into the world, and now we are in sin. We are sinners, and we deserve his wrath. What does it mean to be a sinner? What does it mean that he, we were made sinners? Well, a sinner, you know, if you look through the scriptures, you find so many descriptions of a sinner. We'll only think of a few. A sinner is one whose heart is false. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A sinner is one whose thoughts are evil. And God saw the wickedness of man that it was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 Sinners' hands are defiled with blood. Their feet run to violence. Their eyes have no fear of God before them. And we saw that in Romans chapter 3 several months ago. Sinners are wicked, rebels, lawbreakers, God's enemies. When Adam sinned, we were made Sinners. But not only is there the legal aspect of, our, of sin entering the world, and not only is there the practical aspect of sin entering the world, but there's also the eschatological or at-the-end aspect of sin in the world. And it begins now, but it will reach its consummation at the end of this world. And that end is death. Adam's descendants all die. Adam himself died, and we all die. Death. Death. What is death? It's a strange thing. The people we used to talk to and know and love are gone. We see them no more. Our hearts are broken. Death makes the image bearer of God seem cheap and disposable like the Bible relates um, mortal man to stubble, grass, a flower that fades and falls off. Death makes the beautiful child of our dreams and our love to fade and wither and wilt like a cheap flower. Because of death, men's works in this world are vain, empty, pointless, as the wise man Solomon said. An eternal death will follow, which includes hell, 
the judgment day, that awful declaration, depart from me, ye cursed, and at the end, the lake of fire. And according to Paul here, death reigns. Death reigns. There in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And because of his argument there, he's implying it still reigns now. He's not limiting it to that time. Death reigned. Verses, let's read again verses 13 and 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. In verses 13 and 14, Paul is making a point about the law that at the same time proves the sovereignty of the king of terrors or death in this sin-cursed world. And why does Paul mention the law there? I've often puzzled over verse 13 where he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. When there is no law, nevertheless, death reigned. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul had argued that salvation is through the redemption that Christ completed. It's received by faith, not through the law. Now, here in 5, verse 13, Paul is saying the law of Moses did not introduce death into the world. Sinners before and after Moses start life doomed already. The law of Moses isn't what brought death in. Adam did. We are subjects of a doomed kingdom, members of a rebel family, and that whole rebel family must die. Salvation does not rely on keeping the commandments of Moses' law, but instead on God transferring us from Adam's kingdom to Christ's kingdom, from the reign of death to the reign of grace. And this transfer doesn't come from our works, but from God's gift. And so that's his argument, at least at a surface level there in verses 13 through 14. But because of how this statement, death reigned from Adam to Moses, functions there, it is not to be taken as limiting it to the time he mentioned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses because death reigns in this fallen world and will continue until this order is brought to an end by the new Adam. And so we can change death reigned to death reigns death reigns because sin is in all of us the legal aspect of sin the practical aspect of sin we do it and it's all around us and death the eschatological or at the end aspect of sin is all around us so paul is saying instead of adam who was made in the image of God and who was supposed to be the one who had dominion over God's creation, instead of Adam being the king, who would expect that? God created him and apparently would have lived forever there in the Garden of Eden and he would be making that into a beautiful place of God's worship and having many children and they'd be spreading out over the whole world and increasing the glory and majesty of God's creation and Adam would be king in a certain sense under God, but instead of Adam being king, death is king in the world. God had said, let them have dominion, Adam and Eve, but now death has dominion 
Adam is dead. He's no king. And here Paul says death reigns. Death reigns because we are sinners. We can call it a reign because death's dominion is universal. Everyone dies. Death is reigning because its power is unchallenged. No one can escape it. Death is reigning because its subjects are held in bondage. We're slaves. We fear death by nature. Death reigns because its curse defiles and destroys even those who are still alive. What is war for those who live through it but a kind of living death? What is famine but a horrible taste of daily death? Death is reigning even in those who live. What is divorce at a more personal level? What is divorce but the death of a marriage and a kind of death of two hearts and lives and more lives, those of their children? What does every new sin bring in this world but more death? Death reigned and death reigns. Death is king and no one escapes. That's what Paul tells us in verses 13 and 14. But then he comes to verse 15, and he starts it with the word but. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out, but is a very important word. But, and here it functions as a very important word. But, in verse 15, but not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. This is a massive contrast between the reign of death and God's gift. It's a world-changing contrast, and it's a life-changing contrast for those who have God's gift. The offense of Adam brought legal, practical, and eschatological consequences on all men. But God gave the free gift of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. And his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ brings legal, practical, and eschatological consequences on its recipients. And this is great news. This is the greatest news in the world. Without it, we are all only slaves of death slaves of sin, slaves to the curse. But with it, we are free men, and we are supposed to reign. We'll get to that. Notice in verse 15, he calls it the free gift, and then he calls it the gift by grace at the end, or toward the end. The gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. What does Paul mean by the free gift and the gift of grace? Paul is still working that a, a parallel and a contrast between Adam and Christ. So let's catch his parallel in this idea of gift. Adam's sin, his guilt, his depravity, his judgment were a gift to you in a sense. Before you were conceived, you did not ask for guilt. You did not ask for death. You did not ask to be born into this miserable world. You did not ask to be made a sinner, but you were. You got them as soon as you came into the world. Now, we might call it a curse rather than a gift. 
but it came to you unasked and unworked for at the beginning. Now, you've worked for plenty of curse since then. You've done a lot since then to prove that you, were, that you fit the bill for sinner, that you, the label you came into the world with. You really fit in with Adam, and you're personally worthy of all the outrage of God's righteous law on your account, but you got that depravity, you got that guilt in the first place. We'll use the word gift, but it's not the right word. You got it unasked for and unworked for at the beginning. And Paul's using that as a contrast. So Adam stood at the head of a race of men, all men. Christ stands at the head of a race of men. The people who are in Adam got Adam's sin. The people who are in Christ receive the gift of grace in Christ. God in his marvelous, amazing, awe-inspiring grace has given us a gift. I hope you see this gift for what it's worth. Look at the favor of God to rebellious, defiled, wicked sinners, to those who are only worthy of burning in God's refuse pit forever. Those who are only worthy of burning in hell forever. What did God do? What did he give? In love, he gave us his only begotten son. He gave us his son to be a new Adam for us, a new man for this world, the man for this world. In verse 15, Paul says it was the grace of God that gave this gift. He says, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. It's not law, and that's one of Paul's emphases here in this section. It's not the law that brought this blessing. It's God's grace that brought the gift of salvation to us. And then still there in verse 15, we have the focus of the gift just like the one man, Adam, gave us a hellish mess, this gift from heaven is by one man, Jesus Christ. Paul describes the work of Christ in giving this gift earlier in the same chapter, and we've already read it, but let's read it again, Romans 5, 6 through 11. And glory in the greatness of God's gift. For when we, verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, under the reign of the curse, our own sin, and death. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, the reconciliation. And that's where he actually went into verse 12, where we started tonight the gift of God's grace. Paul describes the work of Christ in giving this gift. And the gift, this gift by this one man is all of our salvation, righteousness before God, forgiveness 
adoption into his family, and glory, the glory of knowing God here and entering into eternal glory and enjoying his presence forever. How can we contrast the two? How can we, how can we even appreciate in our tiny little minds the greatness of the, the difference between what Adam gave us and what Christ has given us? We can't, but we should try. And the more we try, the better we'll appreciate it. The Holy Spirit will have to give us that grace. And we should meditate often upon that gift. But notice what he also says in verse 15 there. He says, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Just as sin entered the world by one man and all were made sinners, it passed death, it came in by sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned because of Adam. So Christ's work came in by one man, Jesus Christ, and it has abounded unto many. It has abounded to many. The abounding power of God's grace from the one man, Jesus, is more powerful and more effective than the defiling, damning power of Satan's destruction through the one man, Adam. And that's Paul's language there in verse 15 where he says, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of many be dead, if, if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. If Adam's sin brought legal, practical, and at the end, consequences to all his progeny, Jesus' success in being a new representative man will be even greater. Imagine the amazing impact in those areas, legal, practical, and at the end, on Jesus' family. Praise God. What are those aspects? What are those results? We have them spelled out for us in verses 16, 17, and through 21. First, the legal aspect. After Paul tells us there in verse 15 that God's gift by grace came in by that one man, Jesus Christ, and abounded to many. In verse 16, he says, he gives us the legal aspect. He says, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So even after we had heaped on our dung heap of sin, and even our religious performances, which are all defiled by sin, the many offenses, Christ's work nullifies all that, but it doesn't just give us a clean slate. It gives us justification, like we have in Romans chapter 3, where we see that by the glorious mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, his marvelous redemption on our behalf, we're approved by God with the righteousness and the approval with which he views himself. God looks at himself and says, righteous. And then by the work of Christ, he looks at a sinner who is now in Christ, and he says, righteous, with my righteousness. It can't get any better than that. It can't get any greater than that. Our legal standing is not just a white sheet of paper. It's not just that our crimes have been wiped away, but it's a robe of spotless righteousness the glorious robe of the firstborn, the new Adam, 
the better bridegroom, the righteous one, the Lord, our righteousness, himself. Glory to God. And not only did Christ's work, the gift of grace, not only did it give us a new legal standing with God, but it has huge practical ramifications. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, Remember, that's what we're looking at in verse, verses 13 and 14. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And I'm going to come right back to that reigning in life by Jesus Christ. So let's jump to the eschatological Verses 20 through 21, the eschatological or at the end result or aspect of Christ's great gift. Verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the presence of God. That's being received into the bosom of the Father. That's because of the robe of righteousness that God has given his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. He now will receive them at the end into glory, a new heavens and a new earth as his sons. But go back with me to verse 17. We've seen... Adam's sin, and that he is the one who brought sin into the world and it had those different aspects. And then we saw how Christ, by God's gift, came into the world and gave his gracious gift that brings in a wonderful blessing that totally undoes what Adam did and more. But in verse 17, we see that just as Adam's sin brought in a total degradation and destruction to the world and it plays itself out in our daily lives so with Christ in the great gift that came by grace to his people it plays itself out in a tremendous transformation a total change in our daily lives it's the practical aspect of this gift by grace and how what does he call it in verse 17 he calls it reigning in life by one Jesus Christ. He says, they shall reign. They shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Think of the comparison that Paul is drawing in this passage. Of course, it's between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam's sin bound this world in the iron chains of bondage from which it will not recover until it is destroyed. Sorrow, suffering, sadness, disease, war, pain, depression, suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism, divorce, stealing, murder, whatever. Death is king because sin is everywhere. And death rules. Death rules thoroughly. But now consider Paul's comparison in verse 17. He says, much more, they shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Earlier, death reigned. There he says, they shall reign. It's a shift in who's doing the reigning. Since when Adam sinned, death reigned, we might expect Paul to say that when Christ gave himself as that glorious gift, then life would reign. Because if Adam sinned, then death reigned, then we might think Christ gave himself, so then life would reign. And that's true. Life reigns in the believer. But Paul doesn't say that here. Later in verse 21, he gets kind of close when he says that grace reigns. Because he says in verse 21 that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. But here in verse 17, Paul, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's not just like, you know, flaking out a little bit on his, on his language. He's saying believers, those who are united to Christ, those who are in Christ, should reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. What is the quality or character, the identifying reality of this reign of the believer in Christ? It's life. It's a reign in life. With Adam, death reigned. But with Christ, the believer reigns in life. Death on the one hand, life on the other. Adam was that man who sinned, he fell, and death was the result. But Jesus is that man who stood, and his righteousness is given to us, and his life triumphs. What should reigning look like for the believer? What does reigning in life mean? I think it's huge, but I'm going to give you a very simple statement about it. One thing I know, by the word reigning, Paul does not mean self-seeking. He does not mean seeking our own pleasure and honor. He does not mean covetousness and pride. He does not mean fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Those are the fruits of being an Adam, not in Christ. So if someone tells you, we're kings and priests in Christ, so we should have all the good stuff our flesh wants, that's foolishness. That's an aspect of being an Adam, not Christ. But remember what I mentioned at the beginning, how that Romans chapter 5 seems to stand as a hinge between justification and sanctification. I think, and I could be wrong, that's why I said I think, but I think that reigning in life is what Paul is just about to describe in Romans 6 through 8. Reigning in life means identification with Christ, as seen in Romans 6, victory over the flesh, as seen in Romans 7, and spirit-filled killing of sin and spirit-filled Christian thinking, as seen in Romans 8. It means living to the full the life that leads to eternal glory. What did Joshua, the type of Christ, what did he give the Israelites when he brought them into the land of Canaan? He gave them life, and they corporately reigned over the land of Canaan. But what did that look like? It meant using a sword, killing Canaanites, and it meant using their trowel to build the cities that God wanted them to build and to, to fix up and beautify the ones that he had given them without them building them and to make a glorious temple for God's honor and glory. And so reigning for the Israelites in Canaan meant bringing God glory in this world. And reigning for the believer is, I believe, as I said, Romans 6 through 8, which is that same thing, but at a spiritual level. Killing sin, dealing with our flesh, and putting on the gifts, the graces of the Holy Spirit.
They're from him. They're not from us. They're gifts. The ultimate reality of reigning in life will be heaven. And so it, even that came to my mind first. I thought, well, maybe this is heaven. It's glory. But remember the contrast that Paul is drawing. Paul draws a, a tight comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus. Death's reign, because of Adam's sin, begins now, as I pointed out. Death reigned between Adam and Moses, and it reigns today. In all of the mess that's happening in this world, death is reigning. But, in a real sense, no one has experienced death yet. In the fully consummated sense, the lake of fire is not yet populated. Death is yet to be, from what we understand from the book of Revelation. So there's a sense in which even the kingdom of darkness is inaugurated, but not yet. And I believe it's the same way as Paul draws this contrast and he says, death reigned, and you see all of its effects, and then he says, the believer will reign. There's a here and now and an at the end aspect. The reign of the Christian in life begins now, even though absolutely it will be consummated in the glories of the new creation. Death's reign brings terrible chaos now and eternal chaos later. Life's reign brings glory now and eternal glory later. So with these things in mind, Adam's sin, the curse, condemnation, the practical effects of Adam's sin, and the at-the-end judgment coming on all those who are in Adam, and then Christ's glorious gift of grace, the justification, the robe of righteousness that God gives in Christ, the practical effects, and then the at-the-end glory that God will give us. I have some prayerful questions for all of us, and I will be done. We were born in Adam's world. Sin characterized us. Condemnation faced us. Death was our sure end, death in every sense. Now, by God's amazing grace, the free gift of his son, we're born again into Jesus' world. Righteousness characterizes us. Approval faces us. Life, eternal life, is our sure end. And instead of the reign of death, we are supposed to reign under the reign of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. So my question for you is, are you reigning? Are you reigning? Some who hear that question will still be in Adam's world under the reign of death. If your life is characterized by sin, the curse, death's grip, you are in Adam's world. You're still in Adam. Run to the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is alive. Cry to him. He hears and answers the cries of those weary and heavy laden with being part of the old Adam's world. Cast yourself upon Christ. You don't need just a little religious fixing. That's Paul's whole big point here is you don't need, he's dealing with the Jews or Judaizers who were looking at the law as the answer. He says, no, people were dying long before the law and people were justified before the law. Romans chapter four talks about Abraham being justified. We don't need a little... We don't need a little law-keeping, even though later we'll keep the law as part of reigning. But 
We don't need religious fixing. We don't need to paint it up. We need the gift of God, the grace of God in the one man, Jesus Christ. I can't give it to you. He can. He does. Amen. Remember what he said in um, verse 15. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. It's a gift. Come to him for it. He won't make you pay for it, but you'll have to die to get it. Christ said, take up your cross daily. In other words, you pay everything because you lose all your old Adam life. And he brings you into the new. I ask again, are you reigning? Are you reigning? If you are a believer in Christ, Reigning in life is what Christ has purchased for you and won for you and gifted to you and gotten for you by grace. When he shed his blood on Calvary's cross, he was buying your rule. He was buying your kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's his kingdom, but he was paying for your place in it. He was buying your ticket for it. Just as surely as by virtue of Adam's just, by, just, by, just as surely as by virtue of Adam, rebellion was yours. Through Adam, transgression was yours. Through Adam, sin was yours. Through Adam, guilt was yours. Through Adam, confusion was yours. Through Adam, condemnation was yours. Through Adam, false doctrine and lies were yours. And hell was yours. So surely, through your Savior, Jesus Christ, repentance is yours. Have you been using it? Faith is yours. It's part of the kingdom. Use it. Obedience is yours. Joy is yours. Peace is yours. Holiness is yours. Power is yours. Godliness is yours. Victory is yours. Mortifying sin is yours. Killing those Canaanites. The cross of Christ is yours. You can't get away from it. You must take it up, and it must take up you. Suffering for his name is yours. Living for him is yours. It's all yours, Paul says. In, in Corinthians, he says, life, death, heaven, hell, everything's yours. How did we get it? Christ bought it for us belongs to us just as surely as when a child is born into this world he's born into the world of death and he's going to know death we're going to have to tell him about war and about sin and about all the terrible things that we wish we didn't have to tell children why because it's theirs it's theirs they will not just be exposed to it that is them death is what sin fills them and death is the result but just as surely as that, if you are in Christ, all things are yours. Reign, rule. All things are yours. They will all be beneath Christ's feet, and they will all be beneath yours, not the same way that Christ is. 
and I know you all have a context of solid doctrine in which you're able to hear when I say reign, and when I say take the kingdom. I don't mean in a way like Christ is exalted, but here he says, because of the grace and gift of Christ, we shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. I ask again, are you reigning? Or is something else reigning over you? Are you reigning? If so, then lie very low at the feet of your Savior and rely on him every moment. This is not a reign. This is a, a peculiar kind of reign. It's a totally dependent kind of reign. It's not the reign of someone who pulls themselves up and becomes great. It's the reign of someone who is invested with a kingdom by grace. And they come trembling under their king and say, tell me how to reign. I don't know how to do it. And it's your kingdom. You gave me a part in it. All right, tell me what to do. Remember, you did not choose to be born as a descendant of Adam. You didn't have anything to do with it, but it sure affected you. And you confirmed that natural guilt from Adam by your life. And you didn't choose to be born again as a descendant of Christ. You didn't choose to come into Christ's kingdom. Your part in coming in was responding to his great grace. But it sure has been a glorious blessing. Just like coming into, into, into Adam's kingdom was a terrible curse. Coming into Christ's kingdom is a great blessing. And as a child of God, you are daily confirming the glorious truth of the blessings that you have in that kingdom. And if you're a believer, you are reigning in life by one, Jesus Christ. But God left us in this world with sin, with the flesh, and there can be quite a range of reigning. There can be quite a, there's quite a spectrum of those who rule or are ruled just like there was quite a spectrum in the Old Testament of God's people when he brought them into Canaan and they were supposed to cast out those Canaanites and they were supposed to reign. There was quite a, it was quite a mixed, a mixed time. There was often little reigning and there was a lot of being ruled over. But God had given them all that they needed to reign. Are you reigning? Remember what he says here at the end of verse 17. He says, they shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. It is only by that one, Jesus Christ, that we reign at all. Do you know him? Do you know him? Even as a believer, you might say, yes, I know him. I've had many experiences that demonstrate that I know him, and I have, I have mortified sin but do you know him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? Didn't Christ say, abide in me and I in you? Didn't he say that if we obey him and walk with him, his father and he would come and sup with us and he with him? Isn't that the, the life that we're supposed to be living? That's, that's the reign. That's the kingdom. Just like Adam's filth, flowed through our nature to empower us to sin, corruption, filthiness, and destruction. Jesus' power flows through us to empower us to holiness, righteousness, obedience, and life. 
when I, it was all this talk about reigning. I'm not giving you a pep rally. I'm not telling you that you're great and you'll be a successful Christian. I'm telling you about a great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't half save people. When he came in and became the new Adam, the new man with a capital M, who rules over all this world, all authorities given to him in heaven and in earth, and this world will be put under his feet. And he must reign until all enemies are put under him and, and the last enemy will be death, who is now the king. Christ is the king. You can live radically for Christ because Christ paid for that. Through him, we will not be slaves to lust. Through him, we will not be slaves to selfish thinking. Through him, we will not be slaves to gossip and backbiting. Through him, we will take up the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth, the shoes of the gospel, and we will go into the battle. Laziness, idleness, presumption are fruits of Adam, not the world of Jesus. Holy violence is part of reigning in life by one, Jesus Christ. So let's get at it. And let's reign. We should trade our heavenly talents, that gift of grace that Christ has given us. It was a free gift. We didn't work for it. We work in it. We reign. Reigning is not lazy work. It's hard work. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our great and glorious Father in heaven, thank you for what you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we don't know how to reign. And Lord, if we look at our lives and compare our actions and our thoughts and our words with your holy word, with that holy law which cannot save us, but is a brilliant mirror and a beautiful guide. Oh Lord, we see that we have often continued as if we were in Adam's world. But oh Lord, you have put us in Christ's world and I pray that you would give all of us boldness and zeal and courage and strength and that we would drive Canaanites out and that we would reign in life by one, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.